Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Now your host, Timothy George. Welcome to today's Beeson Podcast. Well, I tell you, we have a great surprise for you on the podcast today. I have a conversation with my good friend of many years now, Eric Metaxas. Eric is a world-renowned author. He's a great speaker for the gospel all over the place. He's been with us at Beeson several times in the past. He's coming back again in a few weeks to our campus. Eric, welcome to the Beeson Podcast. Well, it is a joy to be back. Thank you, my friend. Now, I want to talk particularly about two of your books, your book on Bonhoeffer and your book on Luther. Now, it was 10 years ago. Uh, in the year 2009, that Bonhoeffer, pastor, martyr, prophet, and spy was published. It became the book of the year. It became a New York Times bestseller. It won the John C. Pollock Award for Biography here at Beeson. Uh, you had written other books before, including a wonderful biography of William Wilberforce. So biography is a genre that seems to appeal to you. But this Bonhoeffer biography took off like an exploding rocket into the sky of publishing. Why Bonhoeffer? Well, I have to say, um, you know, there, there are many good answers to that uh, question. I, I will give the blanket statement that I felt led of the Lord uh, to, to write the book, and that even beyond that, um, it had a deep personal meaning for me. When I came to faith, seriously, uh, in 1988, the man who led me to faith, my friend Ed Tuttle, gave me a copy of Bonhoeffer's Cost of Discipleship. Mm. And he says, have you heard of him? You know, you went to Yale. Have you heard of him? And I thought, are you kidding? I've never heard of this man. Uh, watched TV my whole life. Uh, went to good uh, schools. Never heard of him. And so I started looking into his life and then started reading The Cost of Discipleship. And I was just staggered. I said, this is the kind of Christianity I could get behind. This is amazing. So it was a big part of my coming to faith. And it was personal because my family lived in Germany when Bonhoeffer was there, when mm. Hitler took over. Mm. My family lived through this, and all my life I've heard the stories of what it was like. And my grandfather, who was anti-Hitler, but who had no voice, um, tried to stay uh, out of the army. Uh, he was finally forced to go in in 43, that late. He managed oh. to stay out, and he was killed in 1944. My mother was 10 years old, and I dedicate the book to him because there were many Germans who were not on board with what was happening, but they didn't have a voice. Bonhoeffer was their voice. Bonhoeffer was the voice of the church. Bonhoeffer was the voice for the for the people of God, the Jews. And when I heard his story, I said, I hope somebody tells the story someday, never dreaming that mm. I would write a biography. I never had any ambition to write a biography in my life, ever. But God had different plans. And um, when I wrote the book, it was such an agony. Um, I cannot, people won't believe me. They think I'm exaggerating. The publishing of the book was a tragedy and an agony. Uh, the first publisher wanted me to cut it in half. And mm. I said, look, I know what I have here. I know that the story is so fascinating and rich that if you cut it in half, 
you're going to destroy as much as you're going to gain. And and so I switched publishers to Thomas Nelson. They published it as I wrote it. Mm. And imagine publishing a 600-page biography of a German theologian and expecting maybe it'll sell 20,000 copies if we're very lucky and watching as the Christian American reading public embraces this book in a way that they never dreamt. And so what happened to the book was, to my mind, the Lord's doing, because I, Mm. I never dreamt I would write the book. I never dreamt that publishing it would be such an agony. It was horrible. But I prayed and prayed, and the Lord actually spoke to me. I don't say that kind of thing lightly about the book, made it clear that he had his hand on the book. I didn't know what that meant, but here we are all these years later. You know, it sold over a million copies. We're making a movie that's actually happening right now. It's exciting. And it's been translated into 20 languages. I never, in a million years, never dreamt this this could be. And actually, the, the greatest honor I think I've ever gotten just the other day... Um, I I saw a copy, The Cost of Discipleship, the book that made Bonhoeffer as famous as he is, because it's the book that everybody seems to be familiar with. It's sold zillions of copies over the years. I was asked by the publisher Touchstone, Simon & Schuster, to write a new foreword to a new edition, the greatest honor I could ever have. Mm. And I saw the first copies of the book um, just two days ago. And so it's it's been a crazy path. I'm the first person who could never have imagined that that the story of this great man, and let's be honest, why did all this happen? Because the story of this man is unlike any other. It's not because of my book. His story affects people. It affected me. It changed my life. And when people read the story of this man totally sold out to God, willing to buck the establishment, and by the establishment, I'm talking about the church of his day, Mm. not just the Nazis. Um... I have to say that when people come in contact with a life given over to God in this way, it's so inspiring that you can't help but want to become closer to God, uh, a better person, and you can't help but want to share the story. So um, it, it's, been a, it's been a crazy, beautiful uh, journey for me. Wonderful. You know, when Beeson Divinity School was begun 31 years ago, Bonhoeffer was immediately chosen as kind of the mentor for our school. We read his books. We we read Life Together. It was kind of the required reading in the curriculum for all of our students in those early days. We have a statue of Bonhoeffer in our chapel. So he's a person we're continuing to learn from and to live through. Why do you think it was uh, that so many people, particularly in the American church, but elsewhere internationally, were struck by Bonhoeffer in this way? Uh, he's a name we know, but we didn't really know his story. Many people didn't until your book came along. Well, I, I think the answer is actually quite simple. Um, this happens over and over. Now, you're an academic, and you understand that the world of academia does not um, – the, 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 the world of academia does not – always serve the public well. In other words, when you're a specialist and you're a scholar, Mm. it's possible to miss the bigger picture. The bigger picture with Bonhoeffer is so spectacular um, that I think once people really saw that in my book, they realized he was everything they hoped he might be. A lot of the scholars, uh, the Bonhoeffer scholars, I would label them as either agnostic 
or as so uh, theologically liberal that they created a Bonhoeffer in their own image. Clifford Green, uh, who is the editor of the Bonhoeffer works in English, uh, Victoria Barnett, a lot of the people affiliated with the uh, Bonhoeffer, the International Bonhoeffer Society, um, drifted very far, not just theologically liberally, but but politically liberally, and they kind of created a Bonhoeffer in the image of a 60s radical um, and overplayed, well, overplayed, d- dramatically misunderstood what he said in his letters and papers from prison. When he talks about religionless Christianity, they um, really uh, horribly misunderstood that phrase and painted a kind of a, a humanist ethicist who had moved beyond traditional Christianity, that's dramatically wrong. It's Mm. the opposite of what Bonhoeffer was saying in a personal letter to his best friend. And so a lot of people were confused about Bonhoeffer. I was one of them, and I said, when I do the research, I'm going to have to write what I find. If at the end of his life he slid theologically away from the historical faith, I'm going to have to write about that. But on the contrary, what I discovered to my total shock was that all of these scholars had missed the man. They had missed that this man, at the end of his life, became closer to Jesus, closer to the faith uh, given us by the saints. And I think when I put the facts in my book, in other words, most of it comes from his own letters, from his own journals, it becomes incontrovertible. There's, There's really... Um, nothing we can say when you hear the man speak for himself. And usually scholars are more interested in his scholarly writings, which are difficult. And so somehow when people saw who he really was, it, it changed everything. People thought, we always wondered, is this the man who wrote The Cost of Discipleship, or, or did he become some kind of a, a, a humanist, um, post-Christian humanist, and the fact is, no, we now have the proof. And, and you know, you don't need to be a scholar uh, to be able to see it. That's the beauty of it, is that some of this is so clear. And I think that when I, uh, almost in my ignorance, said, I'm just going to write what I find. I, I don't have any um, dog in the fight. Let's just see what it is. It was so incredible that I think a lot of people were shocked and thrilled, and some people were very angry. Some people wrote very vicious reviews because uh, they maybe were embarrassed or something. I don't know what happened, but I can tell you I never expected uh, the reception of this book. But I think that Bonhoeffer, when people saw him for who he was, you cannot help but fall in love with him. He was a, 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 a saint of God who loved God so much that he did not count his own life uh, as anything. I mean, how do you fail to be inspired by, by a beautiful, intelligent man willing to live out his faith in the darkest times? And so it really, uh, as I say, the whole thing is a, was an amazing surprise to me, and I'm glad that all these years later it continues to be translated. It was just translated into Greek wow. two years ago, mm. and I thought my Greek friends in Greece can read it. I'm, you know, I'm just thrilled. You know, the first time I ever remember reading the name Bonhoeffer or even hearing about him, he was not a part of our Sunday school curriculum in my Southern Baptist church growing up. 
it was in a book I read in college called Honest to God by John A.T. Robinson, who was a bishop in the Church of England, and he presented Bonhoeffer as an exemplar of what was being called the death of God. Yeah, uh, this is the, this is hilarious, isn't it? I mean, yeah. it's just so unbelievable that these people were able to twist and twist and and seemingly not care, and there was nobody to speak up for Bonhoeffer. It's very strange. What do you think Bonhoeffer meant by those terms, religionless Christianity or the world come of age? Those are the phrases they latched onto, and they do come from very late in his prison period. What, what's your well, interpretation of that? But it, there's sometimes when people don't get a joke, it's <laughs> the same type of thing. They're so tuned into another frequency that they're not listening to the sense of what someone is saying. Bonhoeffer mm. was not a Delphic oracle writing poetry. Um, he was a prisoner writing to his best friend. Mm. And so his best friend would understand what he meant. And the scholars who read it clearly didn't understand what he meant or wanted to read what they wanted to read. So when he says religionless Christianity, what he is basically saying is, look, this phony religious Lutheran church that bowed the knee to Adolf Hitler or that was not willing to stand against Adolf Hitler until it was too late, this is not the church of God. The church of God must stand, must risk everything for the truth of Jesus, and if we hesitate... If we don't discern what the Holy Spirit is saying, that is mere religion, it is dead religion, and it becomes a tool of the devil. And Bonhoeffer, in prison, imagine, knows that we in the German church have failed. And he says, in order for us to be the people of God, it's just like the Old Testament prophets calling the people of God to be the people of God. They're saying, Mm. just because you're a Jew doesn't make you a person of God. You have to live your faith. Bonhoeffer saying the same thing to the German Lutheran Church. He says, you don't get to call yourself the church unless you live as the called out ones. And so Bonhoeffer, when he says we need a religionless Christianity, he's saying to his best friend, our going to church on Sunday and saying, I'm a religion, I'm, or I'm a Lutheran, I'm saved by grace, I'm German, that is nothing. We need a Christianity that we live out outside the church, that we live out Monday through Saturday that we live out with our whole being and are willing to risk our lives for the faith. If that had existed in Germany, Hitler could have never risen to power. And so it's clear when you read his other writings and when you read Karl Barth's views of quote-unquote religion, Mm. he's speaking of it in the pejorative sense that when we become merely religious, we fail. And I think that when he talks about a world come of age, imagine living at a time that the Nazis are in power. You think, if we cannot live out our faith with guts, with, with a muscular Christianity, willing to do anything for Christ, including getting involved in a plot to kill the head of state, if we don't live out our faith with everything we have uh, in this world come of age, meaning where evil is uh, you know, riding a horse through the center of the town square, evil has triumphed, and he says, well, okay, the only thing that can stand against that is Jesus. And and we need to understand that we're facing that level of evil now. This is not, you know, 1880 when when the Kaiser was a Christian and everything is okay. With that will no longer fly. It's a world come of age. 
And, and I think that the misunderstanding of that by the theologians in the Depth of God movement, and so it was a kind of willful misunderstanding, and they were able to twist these little phrases. I mean, imagine writing a letter to your friend, you're in prison, and then somebody comes along and writes a white paper, you know, a 30-page white paper based on five words by Timothy George. And, you know, you'd want to get out of your grave and say, excuse me, I didn't mean, excuse me, you got it wrong. But there was, there was no one to speak for Bonhoeffer, and his best friend, Eberhard Beitke, did speak against this, but he, he feared doing it strongly. I think he thought as long as Bonhoeffer's getting attention, it'll all work out in the end. But it, it took a lot longer for it to work out, uh, because, you know, my book didn't come out till 2010, and for many, many years, people were persuaded uh, by the death of God, uh, uh, theologians, if you want to call them that, and then by the, the other theologians who, who weren't sufficiently strongly against that misreading. Now, Bonhoeffer was a Lutheran theologian and very much indebted to Luther in many ways. He quotes Luther, I think, more than any other text except the the, the, the Bible. And right. and uh, you have now moved, in a way, back in history from the 20th century Bonhoeffer to Martin Luther. You have written a wonderful biography published in 2017 by Penguin, Martin Luther, the man who rediscovered God and changed the world. Does the world need another biography of Luther? Why did you write this? Well, for many uh, similar reasons to why I wrote about Bonhoeffer, I said, I'm a popular writer, I'm not a theologian, and I'm not an academic. And I believe one of the gifts that God has given me is the ability to communicate clearly. Um, and I think that, you know, when I looked at what had written been written about Luther, the, the best general biography you could really find was by Roland Bainton, mm-hmm. which and the book is seventy years old. It was published, and, Eric, the year I was born, nineteen fifty. <laughs> I mean, but it, when I when I you know I think of nineteen fifty as not that long ago, and then I realized, <laughs> wait a minute, it's now seventy years, you know. And I thought to myself, we need a new biography for a few reasons. First of all. Uh, I think as good as Bainton's book obviously is, it can be a little dull uh, in parts. And I realize that there are many sides to Luther that are so crazy and so wonderful and so wild. And he was such a maniac in so many ways. I said, this ought to be a very, very entertaining and funny story Mm. because this guy was a very, very entertaining and funny man. He was just extraordinary. And I thought... That needs to be communicated in the book. And then, of course, let's be honest, it was the 500th anniversary. Right. Uh, 2017 was the 500th anniversary um, of when he nailed the theses uh, to the door of the Castle Church in Wittenberg. And so it was this huge celebration, this huge moment in history. And and my friends, uh, Greg Thornbury and Marcus speaker convinced me. They said, Eric, you've got to do this. You're the one to write the book. And they began to make me see the significance of Luther, which frankly I had not seen before that. I mean, as as little as I knew of him, I didn't know that he had been the one chosen by God in a way, uh, not just to turn over the, the tables in the temple, but to really reorient the entire West in a way that prepared it for the future in which we live, a future of self-government and liberty and religious liberty. It took a maniac like Luther 
um, to have the, the guts uh, to fight the way he did. And, and I didn't know this. And so when I began to see this and I wanted, when I began to see how entertaining and funny he was, I said, wow, I really am going to write this book because I, I, you know, I, I said it's going to be fun. I, you know, once in a while I like to write something that's really entertaining. There's no Nazis in the book. You know, it's a little <laughs> bit more <laughs> fun to read. And so I, I actually enjoyed writing it. And as a writer, I can tell you, I normally don't enjoy writing. Writing is really hard work. But the, the, but the Luther book to me, it's just one of the most entertaining stories I've ever uh, I've ever encountered. So I, I was particularly thrilled, um, you know, that it got such a great reception. It was the first time I had a full page review in the New York Times that mm. was positive, and you know, it was all. Um, it, it ended up uh, being a wonderful experience. I mean, Luther was a flesh and blood character, and you make him come alive off the pages. So if you haven't read Martin Luther, the man who rediscovered God and changed the world, Penguin 2017, I recommend it to you. It's a great read and one of the great figures. I'd say Luther is one of the four great theologians in the history of the church, Augustine, Luther, Calvin, and I would put Bart in that category. They don't always agree yeah. with Bart, but Luther yeah. very much helped shape the way in which we understand God and ourselves and the world, and you bring this out in this uh, this biography. Uh, I, w- I want to go back to another book, uh, co- actually two books that you wrote. They're, n- they're not as large as we've talked about Bonhoeffer and Luther, and they're not about one person. They're actually about two books, Seven Men, Seven Women. Now, they're all interesting characters that you deal with in those books, but one in particular I want you to focus on, and in Seven Men, one of the characters is Chuck Colson. And it's actually through Chuck Colson that you and I first met uh, we were yeah. his friends, his colleagues. We were both with him the night in which he collapsed, which led to his death. I'll never forget that, uh, standing with you, with Chuck, there on that platform. Uh, say a little bit about Chuck, your relationship to him, and why he's still a person we need to remember 10 years after his death. Yeah, well, first of all, Chuck Colson um, is only in my book, Seven Men, um, because he died. I, I said I will never put anyone in the book Seven Men or Seven Women or any subsequent books uh, like that because I'm planning sequels uh, of those books. There's so many great figures, but if somebody is still living, I, I wouldn't put them in the book. And mm-hmm. I knew that Chuck was on his deathbed after that evening. You and I, obviously, with John Stone Street, will never forget it. It was a moment in history mm-hmm. that the three of us ought to be five feet behind him when he collapsed. I mean, it's one of the most extraordinary moments in my life. Yeah. And I, uh, I, I, I realized that he was dying, and I said, oh my goodness, I get to write about Chuck in this book, because his story is perfect for my book, Seven Men. Um, and, you know, obviously, as horrified as we were that he passed away, I thought, I can write about him, and the world who doesn't know him can learn about him, because it kind of amazed me when I came to faith in 1988, everybody was talking about Chuck Colson. He was the biggest figure, you know, that there was for me. He was my biggest hero, and I'm reading his books. And But, you know, all these years later, a lot of young people don't know who he was. And I said, not only should they know who he was, but he is exactly the kind of person that I want to write about, because he did uh, what everybody in my book, Seven Men, did to be great. They put themselves aside, and they put truth and virtue and God 
uh, in the forefront. And the story of Chuck, I mean, I remember, you know, when I was about uh, 10 and all the Watergate stuff was breaking, I remember his name and seeing his face in the papers and stuff. And then I came to faith and I realized, oh my goodness, that guy, that genius, became a born-again believer, gave everything to God, went to prison, and spent the rest of his life going into prison mm. to help the least of these, the prisoners. It, it, it was such an amazing story. So I started reading all his books, and I got to meet him uh, in the 90s, and then he asked me if I would work for him. And so I worked for him with Breakpoint and got to spend some time with him. And then over the years, we'd see each other, and... When my Bonhoeffer book came out, I'll never forget it because, you know, I'm looking for the Father's blessing, somebody you admire, hmm. revere, like I admire Chuck Colson so much. When he read my book on Bonhoeffer, he wouldn't stop talking about it. He invited me to conferences, and it's, it's like we actually became friends, and I thought this is such an honor that God would allow me to be friends with my hero. And uh, he was even talking about my book, the the, the the few minutes before he collapsed that day, and you know, I thought this is like a dream. Mm. The man that I have admired so much, who belongs in this pantheon, you know, sees that that what I've done in the story of Bonhoeffer is in many ways an encapsulation of what we all care about: religious liberty and standing up for the faith. And and so, so we became friends, as I said. But when I put him in my Seven Men book, it's for for one basic reason, uh, well, for two, he, just like George Washington, was offered power, and he said no. Mm. Chuck Colson was offered a plea deal, and anybody would be crazy to refuse the plea deal. His lawyer begged him and, and thought he must be insane to refuse the plea deal. But Chuck Colson said, listen, I'm a Christian. I'm going to trust Jesus. I'm not going to lie. And, and if, if God wants me to go to prison, I want to go to prison. Uh, it was the kind of thing that shows you that faith is real and that this man was willing to trust God. And he did go to prison because he trusted God. And then when he got out of prison, he did the thing that nobody does. He said, I'm not going to put this behind me. I'm going to spend the rest of my life going into prisons. I'm going to make this my identity. Mm. I'm Chuck Colson the man who went to prison and who encountered the prisoners, those uh, who we have forgotten. And he became a hero uh, for those of us who care about prisoners. He became a hero uh, for many prisoners. And he was willing to, instead of get a lucrative job and put that behind him the way anybody like Martha Stewart or anybody who goes to prison, they just put it behind him and they, they forget about it, they don't talk about it. He did the opposite. And it was because of that that God was able to use him incredibly powerfully. Mm. And so it's a lesson to all of us that you can't outgive God, you can never make a mistake trusting God radically. And, you know, to, to be able to put that in my book as the seventh of the seven men, um, it, it just, it, you know, I, I have to say, I, I really believe that was God's plan, because it's, it's just one of the stories of our time. We've been talking about a book, Seven Men, by Eric Metaxas. He also has a book, Seven Women, fascinating profiles of uh, godly people who have shaped our life in many ways. When Chuck died in 2012, uh, Eric 
you, along with John Stone Street, became the voice of Breakpoint, which continues to air across our country on 1,350 outlets. You are one of the voices that carries forward the legacy, the message, the mission of Chuck Colson, and I'm very grateful to know you, to call you my friend, and to work with you in this witness for the gospel in our time. And Eric, thank you so much for this uh, time on the Beeson Podcast. We look forward to seeing you soon. God bless you in every way. Oh, and right back at you. It's just an honor to be with you here, and I cannot wait to see you uh, in person uh, in one of my favorite uh, cities. God bless you. Thank you so much. We're looking forward to having Eric Metaxas here at Sanford University in a special lectureship sponsored by the Orlean Bullard Beeson School of Education, the 2019 Percy Cook Ratliff Lecture Series. This is going to take place on March the 19th, 2019, 7 o'clock. Reserved seating ranges from $10 to $25 and can be reserved at samford.edu slash go slash Eric Metaxas. Opportunities to meet Eric are also available through VIP ticket options. You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast with host Timothy George. You can subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at our website, BeesonDivinity.com. Beeson Divinity School is an interdenominational evangelical divinity school training men and women in the service of Jesus Christ. We pray that this podcast will aid and encourage your work, and we hope you will listen to each upcoming edition of the Beeson Podcast.